Ethan Frome by Edith Wharton, Chapter 3. There was some hauling to be done at the lower end of the woodlot, and Ethan was out early the next day. The winter morning was as clear as crystal. The sunrise burned red in a pure sky. The shadows on the rim of the woodlot were darkly blue, and beyond the white and scintillating field patches of far-off forest hung like smoke. It was in the early morning stillness, when his muscles were swinging to their familiar task and his lungs expanding with long droughts of mountain air, that Ethan did his clearest thinking. He and Zena had not exchanged a word after the door of their room had closed on them. She had measured out some drops from a medicine bottle on a chair by the bed, and after swallowing them and wrapping her head in a piece of yellow flannel, had lain down with her face turned away. Ethan undressed hurriedly and blew out the light so that he should not see her when he took his place at her side. As he lay there, he could hear Maddie moving about in her room, and her candle, sending its small ray across the landing, drew a scarcely perceptible line of light under his door. He kept his eyes fixed on the light until it vanished. Then the room grew perfectly black, and not a sound was audible but Zena's asthmatic breathing. Ethan felt confusedly that there were many things he ought to think about, but through his tingling veins and tired brain only one sensation throbbed, the warmth of Maddie's shoulder against his. Why had he not kissed her when he held her there? A few hours earlier, he would not have even asked himself the question. Even a few minutes earlier, when they had stood alone outside the house, he would not have dared to think of kissing her. But since he had seen her lips and the seen her lips and the lamplight, he felt that they were his. Now in the bright morning air, her face was still before him. It was part of the sun's red and of the pure glitter of the snow. How the girl had changed since she had come to Starkfield! He remembered what a colorless slip of a thing she had looked the day he met her at the station, and all the first winter how she had shivered with cold when the when the northerly gale shook the thin clapboards and the snow beat like hail against the loose-hung loose hung windows. He had been afraid that she would hate the hard life, the cold and loneliness, but not a sign of discontent escaped her. Zena took the view that Maddie was bound to make the best of Starkfield since she hadn't any other place to go, but this did not strike Ethan as conclusive. Zena, at any rate, did not apply the principle in her own case. He felt all the more sorry for the girl because misfortune had, in a sense, indentured her to them. Maddie Silver was the daughter of a cousin of Zenobia Fromes, who had inflamed his clan with mingled sentiments of envy and admiration by descending from the hills to Connecticut, where he had married a Stanford girl and succeeded to her father's thriving drug business. Unhappily, Orrin Silver, a man of far-reaching aims, had died too soon to prove that the end justified the means. His accounts revealed merely what the ends had been, and these were such that it was fortunate for his wife and daughter that his books were examined only after his impressive funeral. His wife died of the disclosure, and Maddie, at twenty, was left alone to make her way on the fifty dollars obtained from the sale of her piano. For this purpose, her equipment, though varied, was inadequate. She could trim a hat, make molasses candy, recite, Curfew shall not ring tonight, and play the lost chord, and a potpourri from Carmen. When she tried to extend the field of her activities in the direction of stenography and bookkeeping, 
her health broke down, and six months on, her feet behind the counter of the department store did not tend to restore it. Her nearest relations had been induced to place their savings in her father's hands, and though after his death they ungrudgingly acquitted themselves of the Christian duty of returning good for evil by giving his daughter all the advice at their disposal that they could hardly be expected to supplement it by material aid. But when Zenobia's doctor recommended her looking about for someone to help her with the housework, the clan instantly saw the chance of exacting a compensation from Maddie. Zenobia, the doubtful of the girl's efficiency, was tempted by the freedom to find fault without much risk of losing her, and so Maddie came to Starkfield. Zenobia's fault-finding was the silent kind, but not the less penetrating for that. During the first months, Ethan alter alternately burned with the desire to see Maddie defy her and trembled with fear of the result. Then the situation grew less strained. The pure air and the long summer hours in the open gave back life and elasticity to Maddie, and Zena, with more leisure to devote to her complex ailments, grew less watchful of the girl's omissions. So that Ethan, struggling on under the burden of his barren farm and failing sawmill, could at least imagine that peace reigned in the house. There was really even now no tangible evidence to the contrary, but since the previous night a vague dread had hung on his skyline. It was formed of Zena's obstinate silence, of Maddie's sudden look of warning, of the memory of just such fleeting imperceptible signs as those which told him on certain stainless mornings that before night there would be rain. His dread was so strong that, manlike, he sought to postpone certainty. The hauling was not over till midday, and as the lumber was to be delivered to Andrew Hale, the Starkfield builder, it was really easier for Ethan to send Jotham Powell, the hired man, back to the farm on foot and drive the load down to the village himself. He had scrambled up on the logs and was sitting astride of them, close over the shaggy greys, when, coming between him and their screaming necks, he had a vision of the warning look that Maddie had given him the night before. If there is going to be any trouble, I want to be there, was his vague reflection, and he threw to Jotham the unexpected order to unhitch the team and lead them back to the barn. It was a slow trudge home through the heavy fields, and when the two men entered the kitchen, Maddie was lifting the coffee from the stove, and Zena was already at the table. Her husband stopped short at sight of her. Instead of her usual calico wrapper and knitted shawl, she wore her best dress of brown merino, and above her thin strands of hair, which still preserved the tight undulations of the crimping pins, rose a hard perpendicular bonnet, as to which Ethan's clearest notion was that he had to pay five dollars for it at the best bridge at the Betts Bridge Emporium. On the floor beside her stool, his old valise and a bandbox wrapped in newspaper. Why, where are you going, Zena? he exclaimed. I've got my shooting pain so bad that I'm going over to Bettsbridge to spend the night with Aunt Martha Pierce and see that new doctor, she answered in a matter-of-fact tone, as if she had said she was going into the storeroom to take a look at the preserves or up to the attic to go over the blankets. In spite of her sedentary habits, such abrupt decisions were not without precedent in Zena's history. Twice or thrice before, she had suddenly packed Ethan's valise and started off to Bettsbridge or even Springfield to seek the advice of some new doctor, and her husband had grown to dread these expeditions because of their cost. 
Zena always came back laden with expensive remedies, and her last visit to Springfield had been commemorated by her paying $20 for an electric battery of which she had never been able to learn the use. But for the moment, his sense of relief was so great as to preclude all other feelings. He had now no doubt that Zena had spoken the truth in saying, the night before, that she had sat up because she felt too mean to sleep. Her abrupt resolve to seek medical advice showed that, as usual, she was wholly absorbed in her health. As if expecting a protest, she continued plaintively, If you're too busy with the hauling, I presume you can let Jotham Powell drive me over with the sorrel in time to catch the train at the flats. Her husband hardly heard what she was saying. During the winter months, there was no stage between Starkfield and Bettsbridge, and the trains which stopped at Corbury Flats were slow and infrequent. A rapid calculation showed Ethan that, that Zena could not be back at the farm before the following evening. If I'd, supposed, if I'd supposed you'd made any objection to Jotham Powell's driving me over, she began again, as though his silence had, had implied refusal. On the brink of departure, she was always seized with a flux of words. All I know is, she continued, I can't go on the way I am much longer. The pains are clear away down to my ankles now, or I'd have walked into the stark field on my own feet sooner than put you out and ask Michael Evie to let me ride over on his wagon to the flats when he sends when he sends to meet the train that brings his groceries. I'd have had two hours to wait in the station, but I'd have sooner done it, even with this cold, than to have you say, Of course jo Jotham will drive you over. Ethan roused himself to answer. He became suddenly conscious that he was looking at Maddie while Zena talked to him, and with an effort he turned his eyes to his wife. She sat opposite the window, and the pale light reflected from the banks of snow made her face look more than usually drawn and bloodless, sharpened the three parallel creases between ear and cheek, and drew querulous lines from her chin, from her thin nose to the corners of her mouth. Though she was but seven years her husband's senior, and he was only twenty-eight, she was already an old woman. Ethan tried to say something befitting the occasion, but there was only one thought in his mind, the fact that, for the first time since Maddie had come to live with them, Zena was to be away for a night. He wondered if the girl were thinking of it, too. He knew that Zena must be wondering why he did not offer to drive her to the flats and let Jotham Powell take the lumber to Starkfield, and at first he could not think of a pretext for not doing so. Then he said, I take you over myself, only I've got to collect the cash for the lumber. As soon as the words were spoken, he regretted them, not only because they were untrue, there being no prospect of his receiving cash payment from Hale, but also because he knew from experience the imprudence of letting Zena think he was in funds on the eve of one of her therapeutic excursions. At the moment, however, his one desire was to avoid the long drive with her behind the ancient sorrel who never went out of a walk. Zena made no reply. She did not seem to hear what he had said. She had already pushed her plate aside and was measuring out a draught from a large bottle at her elbow. It ain't done me a speck of good, but I guess I might as well use it up, she remarked, adding as she pushed the empty bottle toward Maddie. If you can get the taste out, it'll do for the pickles. Chapter 4 
As soon as his wife had driven off, Ethan took his coat and cap from the peg. Maddie was washing up the dishes, humming one of the dance tunes of the night before. He said, So long, Matt. And she answered gaily, So long, Ethan. And that was all. It was warm and bright in the kitchen. The sun slanted through the south window on the girl's moving figure, on the cat dozing in a chair, and on the geraniums brought in from the doorway, where Ethan had planted them in the summer to make a garden for Maddie. He would have liked to linger on, watching her tidy up and then settle down to her sewing, but he wanted still more to get the hauling done and be back at the farm before night. All the way down to the village he continued to think of his return to Maddie. The kitchen was a poor place, not spruce and shining as his mother had kept it in his boyhood, but it was surprising that a home-like look, that what a home-like look the mere fact of Zena's absence gave it. And he pictured what it would be like that evening when he and Maddie were there after supper. For the first time, they would be alone together indoors, and they would sit there, each on one side of the stove, like a married couple, he in his stocking feet and smoking his pipe, she laughing and talking in that funny way she had, which was always as new to him as if he had never heard her before. The sweetness of the picture and the relief of knowing that his fears of trouble with Zena were unfounded sent up his spirits with a rush, and he, who was usually so silent, whistled and sang aloud as he drove through the snowy fields. This was in him a slumbering spark of sociability, which the long Starkfield winters had not yet extinguished. By nature, grave and inarticulate, he admired recklessness and gaiety in others and was warmed to the marrow by friendly human intercourse. At Worcester, though he had the name of keeping to himself and not being much of a hand at a good game, he had secretly secretly gloried in being clapped on the back and hailed as Old F or Old Stiff, and the cessation of such familiarities had increased the chill of his return to Starkfield. There, there the silence had deepened about him year by year, left alone after his father's accident to carry the burden of farm and mill, he had had no time for convivial orderings in the village, and when his mother fell ill, the loneliness of the house grew more oppressive than that of the fields. His mother had been a talker in her day, but after her trouble, the sound of her voice was seldom heard, though she had not lost the power of speech. Sometimes in the long winter evenings, when in desperation her son asked her why she didn't say something, she would lift a finger and answer, "'Because I'm listening.' And on stormy nights, when the loud wind was about the house, she would complain if he spoke to her, They're talking so out there that I can't hear you. It was only when she drew toward her last illness and his cousin Zenobia Pierce came over from the next valley to help him nurse her, that human speech was heard again in the house. After the mortal silence of his long imprisonment, Zena's volubility was music in his ears. He felt that he might have gone like his mother if the sound of a new voice had not come to steady him. Zena seemed to understand his case at a glance. She laughed at him for not knowing the simplest sickbed duties and told him to go right along out and leave her to see to things. The mere fact of obeying her orders, of feeling free to go about his business again and talk with other men, restored his shaken balance and magnified his sense of what he owed her. 
Her efficiency shamed and dazzled him. She seemed to possess by instinct all the household wisdom that his long apprenticeship had not instilled in him. When the end came, it was, it was she who had to tell him to hitch up and go for the undertaker, and she thought it funny that he had not settled beforehand who was to have his mother's clothes and the sewing machine. After the funeral, when he saw her preparing to go away, he was seized with an unreasoning dread of being left alone on the farm, and before he knew what was going on, he had asked her to stay there with him. He had often thought since that it would not have happened if his mother had died in spring instead of winter. When they married, it was agreed that, as soon as he could straighten out the difficulties resulting from Mrs. Frome's long illness, they would sell the farm and sawmill and try their luck in a large town. Ethan's love of nature did not take the form of a taste for agriculture. He had always wanted to be an engineer and to live in towns where there were lectures and big libraries and fellows doing things. A slight engineering job in Florida put in his way during his period of study at Worcester increased his faith in his ability as well as his eagerness to see the world, and he felt sure that, with a smart wife like Zena, it would not be long before he had made himself a place in it. Zena's native village was slightly larger and nearer to the rail railway than Starkfield, and she had let her husband see from the first that life on an isolated farm was not what she had expected when she married. But purchasers were slow in coming, and while he waited for them, Ethan learned the impossibility of transplanting her. She chose to look down on Starkfield, but she could not have lived in a place which looked down on her. Even Bettsbridge or Shad's Falls would not have been sufficiently aware of her, and in the greater cities which attracted Ethan, she would have suffered a complete loss of identity. And within a year of their marriage, she developed the sickliness, which had since made her notable even in a community rich in pathological instances. When she came to take care of his mother, she had seemed to Ethan like the very genius of health, but he soon saw that her skill as a nurse had been acquired by the absorbed observation of her own symptoms. Then she too felt silent. Perhaps it was the inevitable effect of life on the farm, or perhaps, as she sometimes said, it was because Ethan never listened. The charge was not wholly unfounded. When she spoke, it was only to complain, and to complain of things not in his power to remedy, and to check a tendency to impatient retort, he had first formed the habit of not answering her, and finally of thinking of other things while she talked. Of late, however, since he had reasons for observing her more closely, her silence had began to trouble him. He recalled his mother's growing taciturnity and wondered if Zena were also turning queer. Women did, he knew. Zena, who had at her fingers' ends the pathological chart of the whole region, had cited many cases of the kind while she was nursing his mother, and he himself knew of certain lovely farmhouses in the neighborhood where stricken creatures pined, and of others where sudden tragedy had come of their presence. At times, looking at Zena's shut face, he felt the chill of such forebodings. At other times, her silence seemed deliberately assumed to conceal far-reaching intentions, mysterious conclusions drawn from suspicions and resentments impossible to guess. That supposition was even more disturbing than the other, and it was the one which had come to him the night before, when he had seen her standing in the kitchen door. 
Now her departure for Bettsbridge had once more eased his mind, and all his thoughts were on the prospect of his evening with Maddie. Only one thing weighed on him, and that was his having told Zena that he was to receive cash for the lumber. He foresaw so clearly the consequences of his imprudence that, with considerable reluctance, he decided to ask Andrew Hale for a small advance on his load. When Ethan drove into Hale's yard, the builder was just getting out of his sleigh. "'Hello, Eth,' he said. "'This comes handy.' Andrew Hale was a ruddy man with a big gray mustache and a stubbly double chin unconstrained by a collar, but his scrupulously clean shirt was always fastened by a small diamond stud. This display of opulence was misleading, for though he did a fairly good business, it was known that his easygoing habits and the demands of his large family frequently kept him what Starkville called behind. He was an old friend of Ethan's family, and his house was one of the few to which Zena occasionally went, drawn there by the fact that Mrs. Hale, in her youth, had done more doctoring than any other woman in Starkfield, and was still a recognized authority on symptoms and treatment. Hale went up to the greys and patted their sweating flanks. "'Well, sir,' he said, "'you keep them too as if they was pets.' Ethan set about unloading the logs, and when he had finished his job, he pushed open the glazed door of the shed, which the builder used as his office. Hale sat with his feet up on the stove, his back propped against a battered desk strewn with papers. The place, like the man, was warm, genial, and untidy. "'Sit right down and thaw out,' he greeted Ethan. The latter did not know how to begin, but at length he managed to bring out his request for an advance of fifty dollars. The blood rushed to his thin skin under the sting of Hale's astonishment. It was the builder's custom to pay at the end of three months, and there was no precedent between the two men for a cash settlement. Ethan felt that if he had pleaded an urgent need, Hale might have made shift to pay him, but pride and an instinctive prudence kept him from resorting to this argument. After his father's death, it had taken time to get his head above water, and so he did not want Andrew Hale or anyone else in Starkfield to think he was going under again. Besides, he hated lying. If he wanted the money, he wanted it, and it was nobody's business to ask why. He therefore made his demand with the awkwardness of a proud man who will not admit to himself that he is stooping, and he was not much surprised at Hale's refusal. The builder refused genially, as he did everything else, he treated the matter as something in the nature of a practical joke and wanted to know if Ethan meditated buying a grand piano or adding a cupolo to his house, offering in the latter case to give his services free of cost. Ethan's arts were soon exhausted, and after an embarrassed pause, he wished Hale good day and opened the door of the office. As he passed out, the builder suddenly called after him. See here, you ain't in a tight place, are you? Not a bit. Ethan's pride retorted before his reason had time to intervene. Well, that's good, because I am a shade. Fact is, I was going to ask you to give me a little extra on that payment. Business is pretty slack to begin with, and then I'm fixing up a little house for Ned and Ruth when they're married. I'm, I'm glad to do it for him, but, but it costs. His look appealed to Ethan for sympathy. The young people like things nice. You know how it is yourself. It's not so long ago since you fixed up your own place for Zena. Ethan left the greys in Hale's stable and went about some other business in the village. 
As he walked away, the builder's last phrase lingered in his ears, and he reflected grimly that his seven years with Zena seemed to Starkfield not so long. The afternoon was drawing to an end, and here and there a lighted pane spangled the cold gray dusk and made the snow look whiter. The bitter weather had driven everyone indoors and Ethan had the long rural street to himself. Suddenly he heard the brisk play of sleigh bells and a cutter passed him, drawn by a free-going horse. Ethan recognized Michael Eady's roan coat and young Dennis Eady, in a handsome new fur cap, leaned forward and waved a greeting. Hello, Eath! he shouted and spun on. The cutter was going in the direction of the Frome farm, and Ethan's heart contracted as he listened to the dwindling bells. What more likely than Dennis Eady had heard of Zena's departure for Bettsbridge and was profiting by the opportunity to spend an hour with Maddie? Ethan was ashamed of the storm of jealousy in his breast. It seemed unworthy of the girl that his thoughts of her should be so violent. He walked on to the church corner and entered the shade of the Varnum spruces where he had stood with her the night before. As he passed into their gloom, he saw an indistinct outline just ahead of him. At his approach, it melted for an instant into two separate shapes and then conjoined again, and he heard a kiss and a half-laughing, oh, provoked by the discovery of his presence. Again, the outline hastily disunited, and the Varnum gate slammed on one half while the other hurried on ahead of him. Ethan smiled at the discomfiture he had caused. What did it matter to Ned Hale and Ruth Varnum if they were caught kissing each other? Everybody in Starkfield knew that they were engaged. It pleased Ethan to have surprised a pair of lovers on the spot where he and Maddie had stood with such a thirst for each other in their hearts. But he felt a pang at the thought that these two need not hide their happiness. He fetched the greys from Hale's stable and started on his long climb back to the farm. The cold was less sharp than earlier in the day, and a thick fleecy sky threatened snow for the morrow. Here and there, a star pricked through, showing behind it a deep well of blue. In an hour or two, the moon would push over the ridge behind the farm, burn a gold edge rent in the clouds, and then be swallowed by them. A mournful pace hung on the fields, as, as though they felt the relaxing grasp of the cold and stretched themselves in their long winter sleep. Ethan's ears were alert for the jingle of sleigh bells, but not a sound broke the silence on the lonely road. As he drew near the farm, he saw, through the thin screen of larches at the gate, a light twinkling in the house above him. She's up in her room, he said to himself, fixing herself up for, up for supper. And he remembered Zena's sarcastic stare when Maddie, on the evening of her arrival, had come down to supper with smoothed hair and a ribbon at her neck. He passed by the graves on the knoll and turned his head to glance at one of the older headstones, which had interested him deeply as a boy because it bore his name. Sacred to the memory of Ethan Frome and Endurance, his wife, who dwelled together in peace for fifty years. He used to think that fifty years sounded like a long time to live together, but now it seemed to him that they might pass in a flash. Then, with a sudden dart of irony, he wondered if, when their turn came, the same epitaph would be written over him and Zena. He opened the barn door and craned his head into the obscurity, half fearing to discover Dennis Eady's roan coat in the stall beside the sorrel. But the old horse was there alone, mumbling his crib with toothless jaws, 
and Ethan whistled cheerfully while he bedded down the greys and shook an extra measure of oats into their mangers. His was not a tuneful throat, but harsh melodies burst from it as he locked the barn and sprang up the hill to the house. He reached the kitchen porch and turned the door handle, but the door did not yield to his touch. Startled at finding it locked, he rattled the handle violently. Then he reflected that Maddie was alone and that it was natural she should barricade herself against nightfall. He stood in the darkness expecting to hear her step. It did not come, and after vainly straining his ears, he called out in a voice that shook with joy, "'Hello, Matt!' Silence answered, but in a minute or two, he caught a sound on the stairs and saw a line of light about the doorframe, as he had seen it the night before. So strange was the precision with which the incidents of the previous evening were repeating themselves, that he half expected, when he heard the key turn, to see his wife before him on the threshold. But the door opened, and Mattie faced him. She stood just as Zena had stood, a lifted lamp in her hand, against the black background of the kitchen. She held the light at the same level, and it drew out with the same distinctness her slim young throat and the brown wrist no bigger than a child's. Then, striking upward, it threw a lustrous fleck on her lips, edged her eyes with velvet shade, and laid a milky whiteness above the black curve of her brows. She wore her usual dress, dress of darkish stuff, and there was no bow at her neck but through her hair she had run a streak of crimson ribbon. This tribute to the unusual transformed and glorified her. She seemed to Ethan taller, fuller, more womanly in shape and motion. She stood aside, smiling silently while he entered, and then moved away from him with something soft and flowing in her gait. She set the lamp on the table, and he saw that it was carefully laid for supper, with fresh doughnuts, stewed blueberries, and his favorite pickles in a dish of gay red glass. A bright fire glowed in the stove and the cat lay stretched before it, watching the table with a drowsy eye. Ethan was suffocated with the sense of well-being. He went out into the passage to hang up his coat and pull off his wet boots. When he came back, Maddie had set the teapot on the table and the cat was rubbing itself persuasively against her ankles. Why, puss, I nearly tripped over you, she cried the laughter sparkling through her lashes. Again, Ethan felt a sudden twinge of jealousy. Could it be his coming that gave her such a kindled face? Well, Matt, any visitors? He threw off, stooping down carelessly to examine the fastening of the stove. She nodded and laughed. Yes, one. And he felt a blackness settling on his brows. Who was that? He questioned, raising himself up to slant a glance at her beneath his scowl. Her eyes danced with malice. Why, Jotham Powell. He came in after he got back and asked for a drop of coffee before he went down home. The blackness lifted and light flooded Ethan's brain. That all? Well, I hope you made out to let him have it. And after a pause, he felt it right to add, I suppose he got Zena over to the flats all right. Oh, yes, and plenty of time. The name threw a chill between them, and they stood a moment looking sideways at each other before Maddie's before Maddie said with a shy laugh, I guess it's about time for supper. They drew their seats up to the table, and the cat, unbidden, jumped between them into Zena's empty chair. Oh, puss, said Maddie, and they laughed again. Ethan, a moment earlier, had felt himself on the brink of eloquence, 
but the mention of Zena had paralyzed him. Maddie seemed to feel the contagion of his embarrassment, and sat with downcast lids, sipping her tea, while he feigned an insatiable appetite for doughnuts and sweet pickles. At last, after casting about for an effective opening, he took a long gulp of tea, cleared his throat, and said, "'Looks as if there'd be more snow.' She feigned real interest. "'Is that so?' Do you suppose it'll interfere with Zena's getting back? She flushed red as she as the question escaped her and hastily set down the cup she was lifting. Ethan reached over for another helping of pickles. You can never tell, this time of year, it drifts so bad on the flats. The name had benumbed him again, and once more he felt as if Zena were in the room between them. Oh, puss, you're too greedy, Maddie cried. The cat, unnoticed, had crept up on muffled paws from Zena's seat to the table and was stealthily elongating its body in the direction of the milk jug which stood between Ethan and Maddie. The two leaned forward at the same moment and their hands met on the handle of the jug. Maddie's hand was underneath and Ethan kept his clasped on it a moment longer than was necessary. The cat, profiting by his unusual demonstration, tried to effect an unnoticed retreat and in doing so backed into the pickle dish, which fell onto the floor with a crash. Maddie, in an instant, had sprung from her chair and was down on her knees by the fragments. Oh, Ethan, Ethan, it's all to pieces. What will Zena say? But this time his courage was up. Well, she'll have to say it to the cat anyway. He rejoined with a laugh, kneeling down at Maddie's side to scrape up the swimming pickles. She lifted stricken eyes to him. Yes, but... You see, she never meant it should be used, not even when there was company, and I had to get up on the step ladder to reach it down from the top shelf of the china closet, where she keeps it with all her best things, and of course she'll want to know why I did it. The case was so serious that it called forth all of Ethan's latent resolution. She needn't know anything about it if you keep quiet. I'll get another just like it tomorrow. Where did it come from? I'll go to Shad's Falls for it if I have to. Oh, you'll never get another, even there. It was a wedding present, don't you remember? It came all the way from Philadelphia, from Zena's aunt that married the minister. That's why she wouldn't ever use it. Oh, Ethan, Ethan, what in the world shall I do? She began to cry, and he felt as if every one of her tears were pouring over him like burning lead. Don't, Matt, don't. Oh, don't, he implored her. She struggled to her feet, and he rose and followed her helplessly while she spread out the pieces of glass on the kitchen dresser. It seemed to him as if, she, as if the tattered fragments of the evening lay there. Here, give them to me, he said in a voice of sudden authority. She drew aside, instinctively obeying his tone. Oh, Ethan, what are you going to do? Without replying, he gathered the pieces of glass into his broad palm and walked out of the kitchen to the passage. There he lit a candle end, opened the china closet, and reaching his long arm up to the highest shelf, laid the pieces together with such accuracy of touch that a close inspection convinced him of the impossibility of detecting from below that the dish was broken. If he glued it together the next morning, months might elapse before his wife noticed what had happened, and meanwhile, he might after all be able to match the dish at Shad's Falls or Bedsbridge. 
Having satisfied himself that there was no risk of immediate discovery, he went back to the kitchen with a lighter step and found Maddie disconsolately removing the last scraps of pickle from the floor. It's all right, Matt. Come back and finish supper, he commanded her. Completely reassured, she shone on him through tear-hung lashes, and his soul swelled with pride as he saw how his tone subdued her. She did not even ask what he had done, except when he was steering a big log down the mountain to his mill, he had never known such a thrilling sense of mastery. And that'll do it, everybody, for chapters three and four of Edith Wharton's Ethan Frome. Thank you so much for listening here at Carla Reads the Classics. And please do pardon my reading gloves. Until next time. <laughs>